before we get into our scripture this morning, I do want to also make a special announcement. Hopefully, if you are on our email list, you got the email this week that we that the uh, Youth Pastor Search Committee has identified two candidates that they want to bring uh, that they want to bring in uh, to do some further investigation. And so, uh, just please uh, look out for that. Uh, the, the two weekends that have been identified are January 17th through the 20th, uh, and then uh, also January 31st through February 2nd or 3rd, 3rd. Um, and so uh, you will hear more about uh, times and gatherings for the youth, and then uh, also times as, as parents where you can uh, get to know him. Uh, so we are excited about what God might be doing. Uh, that doesn't mean that one of these two candidates is the one. Uh, but it means that uh, enough was thought by the committee uh, to, to bring them in to see uh, if that may be what God wills for us. So hopefully, uh, if you have your Bibles open from our reading, we are going to look at Mark 12. And um, normally, if you've been here, we have been going through the book of Romans. Um, we are going to continue back through the book of Romans. We were supposed to start back today, uh, but Gary has been sick and uh, Instead of getting better, he got worse, and so I got a call Thursday uh, that uh, I may, well, his sweet wife Thursday said, you may want to have something ready, <laughs> as she was here for prayer, and so uh, I called Gary and said, hey, I'll be ready, and then Friday he said, hey, I think you should probably preach, and so instead of going into the book of Romans, Gary has been preparing, so he will come back and bring us back to the book of Romans, and so... Um, what I am going to bring to you this morning is um, uh, something that's kind of been in my heart and in my mind, and uh, I don't know about you, but I am one of those people who at the beginning of the year, uh, I do think about goals, I think about the, the past year, uh, I think about uh, uh, success and failures and where I may want to be moving to, so you know, another way to say that is that uh, this time of year, I do evaluate. Uh, I do look at maybe establishing some new patterns in in my life. And so, one of the things that had struck me this year um, that uh, was was lacking, or that I saw a decrease in in last year in my life, is that I, I just felt like as I was evaluating my spiritual life, that my um, my, my Bible reading time, my prayer time, my worship time had had grown colder uh, than, than what I would like. Um, there was actually probably an increase in a lot of those uh, times, but, but, but one of the things as I reflected, it was, it was almost as if my, my Bible reading became very intellectually driven, you know, for uh, looking for truth, looking for um, knowledge, and that somehow my heart and head became a little disconnected over this past year. Now, I don't want you to panic um, uh, in several ways. And, and one could be what you were thinking. The other one could be this also. Um, uh, th there's a pastor. His name is Jason Meyer. And uh, I, was, I was reading a book that he uh, wrote uh, about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he talked about that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones often talked about that when it comes to this whole idea of uh, intellectualism within the church and emotionalism, that it, it's like there's this uh, cliff, th this path. And on both sides, there's this ditch and there's this ravine. And that as a Christian, we err 
going off onto either side of that ditch. Right? That, that if our faith becomes all intellectual, that's not what God would have for us, and so we get off into a ditch that is not what God would have for us. But also as well, if we get off on the other side of just purely emotionalism, that's also not what God would have for us. And so I, I think as we're here on this earth, this is another one of those, uh, I don't want to say balancing acts, but one of those where we, we look on the path and we see danger on both sides. And so there's always going to be this struggle within us. And I think the problem as we're talking about a church, I think oftentimes we look at a church and we look out on uh, the folks attending our church, and this is one of the areas where we divide people. You know, we've got the intellectual types and we've got the emotional types, and a wrong way to look at that would be is to say, okay, I think if we're going to follow the commands of Scripture, we want a hundred intellectual types and a hundred emotional types, and that balances us out as a church. And that's wrong, (laughs) That's wrong, and we're going we're gonna to see from today why that's wrong, but in essence, in essence, what we should see is that in each of us, we should be striving to say, you know, does my faith, am I worshiping God in spirit and in truth? And so today, what we're going to look at is we're going to consider what Jesus called the greatest commandment, and I think if you're looking at uh, New Year's resolutions, and if you're looking at um, what your life should look at like this next year, it may be a good place to start if Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. And so we're going to dig in and we're going to look uh, today. Now, I, I do want to say at the outset, um, man, as I was preparing over the past day um, for this sermon, uh, once again, I kind of realized as I dug into this uh, over the past couple days, really, but as I dug into this, Man, this could be a whole series, and in fact, I'm not even going to really touch uh, the second commandment, which is love your neighbor, vitally important. And so the absence of that in the sermon this morning is not because I don't think that that's of vital importance, I just don't have enough time to get there. Um, and so, um, so really, this sermon is more foundational Uh, and should leave you wanting more, and should leave you asking of the Lord, okay, how do I get there? How do I get to where I need to be? So so the goal um, of this passage, as we look at it, is that we become a people who are growing, and that we're growing in our love, that we're growing in our our love for God. We're we're, we're growing in His grace in our life. We're growing in truth, uh, and, and that we're growing in the way that we act, our obedience from that so that so that our lives look like what we have been looking at in Romans especially in Romans 12:1 where we are a people who out of love and out of a longing and a desire to serve the Lord eagerly lay down our lives lay down our lives because of this great love that we have experienced now as we as we jump into the passage that was read Um, One of the things that you need to know that if you were to read Mark's gospel, one of the things that you would see as you went throughout the gospel is that you would see that over and over again, there are these groups of uh, religious folks of the day who are coming and they're trying to trap Jesus. Constantly, Jesus is being kind of tormented by these folks. It's almost like at every turn, he does this miracle and then it's like the Pharisees 
or the Sadducees or the scribes, and they're trying to, they're trying to trap him um, uh, and, and trying to prove that he's a, a false apostle. Um, uh, they don't like him. And so as we jump into the middle of Mark's gospel here, um, we're going to pick up the third um, of three questions. Three different groups came to Jesus and he questioned them. In uh, this chapter in verse 13, uh, it says, Then they sent some Pharisees and Herodians in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know you're truthful and defer to no one, uh, for you're not partial to any, but to teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so Jesus lays out an, ang- uh, an answer, almost said in anger, an answer. Uh, then in verse 18, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, and they were talking about um, in the resurrection, uh, if there's a man and he dies and his wife and the brothers marry him, who's married in the resurrection? Again, laying a trap for Jesus, trying to get one over on him. And so as we come to our text, uh, what we've got to see in verse 28 is this is the third in these list of questions that we have here uh, in Mark chapter 12. And so notice in, in verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he had answered well, he asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, the first thing that you need to know is what in the world is a scribe? A scribe is uh, one of the religious leaders and rulers of the day. In particular, uh, the scribes were uh, Old Testament scholars. They knew their Old Testament really well. He really knew his Bible. And so, uh, he's of a particular religious sect. And so, you know, I ask the question here, when you read this in entirety, one of the questions I I ask of the text is, this scribe seems a little less hostile than the other questioners. And so, why is he asking this question? Uh, I think it might be that he's in line of the others and he's, he is trying to trap Jesus. He is trying to get one over on him. But on the other hand, this may be an honest question from this scribe. Uh, th- this, this may be that... Uh, this would have been something that these scribes debated. And so it may be that this is an honest question. Uh, ultimately, we don't know. But, but, I love the question, and I think that we can glean a lot from it. And so the question is, which commandment is the greatest of all? Now, one of the things you've got to know is that um, when he is saying this, he's not necessarily talking about the Ten Commandments, um, the Jewish and religious sects of the day, there were uh, 613 uh, laws that were derived from Scripture uh, that they tried to follow. And they were broken down into 365 don'ts, so don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and 248 do's. Now, you may ask, how did they come to 613? Well, it's one for each letter of the Ten Commandments. And so one of the things that would often happen, in fact, it was uh, uh, very normal, and I think this still happens today, is that these scribes and the religious leaders would get together and they would debate which one of these 632 laws are the heavy ones and which ones are the light ones and which ones are the heaviest of all. 
Uh, and, and some of it's some good stuff. I read a lot of them, and it's, you know, it's good stuff. We would agree with them. But when he came and asked this question, this was a question that would have been normal for a religious person to answer and to talk about. And so when the scribe comes to Jesus, he's asking him, hey, you know, you know the law. I hear you talking. I hear the way you've answered these questions. You're a learned person. Which one of these rules is the most important of all? Now, there, is some, there are some potential traps in this. Um, if Jesus would have picked out one of the 613, then the scribe uh, probably would have been armed with some arguments of why that's not the most important one. You understand what I'm meaning by that? Because he's used to arguing this. If Jesus would have gone outside of the 613 he probably would have been marked as a heretic by these scribes. And the other thing that's problematic here, and maybe one of the reasons why the scribe was coming and asking him this question, is because it was thought that Jesus was against the law. Over and over again in Mark's gospel, what we see is, what authority do you have to say these things? Because the thought was of the day that Jesus didn't find the Old Testament and the law and Moses and the prophets um, as authoritative, and that he set himself above them. Now, we know he is above them, but you understand why the religious people of the day who deemed him as heretical were coming after him. So that's the, the background, that's the setup, that's the question. And then we have Jesus, and this is his answer. And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God is one. Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't go into the, the 613 laws that had been laid out. He goes to the Word. He goes to Deuteronomy, and in particular, he goes to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And we know uh, that, uh, that where he goes and, and what he quotes is known as, does anybody know the word that this is known as? The, the Shema. Good, good. And this was very known. This was very known. In fact, it's still to this day, a devout Jew uh, will quote the Shema twice a day when they wake up, and then later in the evening. And this was, had already been taking place. This was a very, very important uh, passage. The Shema comes from the word hear in Hebrew. That's why it's called the Shema. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And this comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And let me read that to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so what Jesus quotes back to this man was very known by him. was very known. He, he, he had memorized it. He, he knew it. And what's interesting about this quotation, if we go to the book of Deuteronomy, 
And if we were to spend a lot of time there, what you would see as you read the book of Deuteronomy is you would see that this sort of phrasing is repeated over and over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Deuteronomy was, uh, was given to Moses. Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy um, as they were in the wilderness and as they were prepared, they'd been in the wilderness for about 40 years and as they were preparing to go into the promised land. And so it's, Deuteronomy is known as the second book of law. And so what I want you to understand here, because of what I want you to get is that this book that Jesus quotes is a law book. And as this scribe was coming to him, this, this Old Testament scholar was coming to him to debate the law, Jesus goes right back in and says, here is the greatest commandment. And he gives them the Shema. And what is known and what is said over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy and the point of this saying, and the point of this saying being repeated in the book of Deuteronomy is this. You will never, you will never be truly obedient externally if you're not obedient internally. Do you see that? That what God is wanting from His people is not mere external obedience, but obedience that comes from a good heart. Um, I have heard it said many times, um, oftentimes when talking about children, is yes, that child is being obedient outwardly, but in their heart they are not being obedient. Meaning if I were to tell my son, stand up, and in his heart he's like, I'm not going to stand up, I'm not going to stand up, and he stood up, there may be external obedience, but inwardly he's rebelling against me. And this is not what God has for us. This is not what the Lord requires of us. And I want us to look a little bit deeper uh, into this, what Jesus says, and then I want us to look at the scribe's response, and I think you'll see something great in this. And so, one of the things, the first things that I want you to see in verse 29, I, I want to break these out. You shall love, the first thing I want you to hear is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Two things about this. First, is look that he says, our Lord. Same in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, your Lord. But there's this personal aspect of, of God. This God that we're talking about is not this massive figure that is detached. There is a personal relationship. And the personal relationship is with God. And in this, our God is one. In this statement, what he's saying is, this God is above all. There is no rival to this God. He is the God of the universe. He is the creator. He creates out of nothing. He sustains. This God is inexhaustible. It's often been said by theologians and uh, pastors, and I think that they're right, that we will spend eternity in heaven with fixed minds and fixed bodies, and we will never, even in eternity, exhaust the greatness and the glory of this God. And so, as the Shema points here, and as Jesus points here, and as He says this, the Lord our God is one, it means there is no greater 
There is no one more worthy to give your allegiance and give glory to than this God. And so our allegiance and our devotion is singular. I was struck this past week in our elders meeting. Steve led the devotion and we were in Isaiah 40. And I just want to read a little bit to you uh, because it just thrilled my heart. And I want you to, as I read a little bit of this to you, starting in verse 9, I want you to hear what it says about God and I want you to hear what it says about His relationship to us. It says, Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Listen to this. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arms, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And then listen to the mightiness of this God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked the heavens by span and calculated the dust of earth by measure and weighed the mountains in balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or, or, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice and taught Him in knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn nor its beast enough for burnt offering. All the nations, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken our God? Or what likeness will you compare Him with? The Lord, our God, is one. It's the beginning. And then the second thing we see from Jesus' response Not only is the Lord incomprehensible and totally worthy of all praise, but it gives us the proper response of God's children to God. It says that we are to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I believe that Moses, and I believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these words are all to go together, but I do want to parse them off out just a little bit because I want you to understand what the writer here is talking about and what Jesus is saying and what the Holy Spirit wants us to hear. And so when he uses the word, the word heart here, um, in this language means the, the seat uh, of affections within us, the spirit, the center of our being, the center of our physical and spiritual and intellectual who we are. The soul, this word is often used to denote our whole life and our whole life being, the very essence of who we are, our, our very being. The mind, of course, talks about our intellect, our thought, and our understanding. And when it talks about strength here, that word is talking about our might, our ability, our capacity to act. And so what you see, what's being said here, is that the greatest commandment is to hear, O Israel, see the Lord our God is one, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what that means, what that means, we're to love Him with our minds. 
We're to know Him intellectually. We're to love Him with the very essence of who we are in our affections, in our emotions. Not only that, but we're also to love Him in our in our will, in our wanting to do, in our desire to do what He has commanded us. And that leads to this loving Him in our actions. A silly example of this would be, um, hopefully, um, a time in your life right now, if you're married, when you have just been smitten with someone. That's an old word, teenagers. Smitten. And, And do you remember when you first fell in love, that all you could think about was this other person, all you could dream about was this person, and when you weren't with them, it almost hurt, right? This is kind of the idea here in the Bible, when we are beholding this God, if we are His children, that this is to be our relationship with Him. And that our actions are flowing out of this. Let's look at verse 32. So Jesus tells him this is the greatest commandment. And this kind of makes me chuckle. Because we have the scribe judging Jesus' words. And the scribe said to him, right, teacher. The scribe didn't know who he was talking to. He says, right, teacher. And notice, he repeats what Jesus said with one addition that's very important. He says, right, teacher, you have truly stated that He is one and there is no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all our heart, with all our understanding, with all our strength, and to love one's neighbor as Himself, this is the addition, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. And what I want you to know is that this scribe was right in giving that addition. Because if you know your Old Testament, what you see over and over and over again is God coming and judging Israel for bringing sacrifice out of the wrong motive and out of the wrong heart. Just one place where we see this is in Hosea chapter 6. I'm just going to jump right into, the, right into Hosea chapter 6 without any background for time's sake. But it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that, me, that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, His going forth as a certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And then God's response. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them into pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints as the raiders wait for a man. So a band of priests murder on their way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. 
Israel has defiled itself. Also Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. And again, what we see, this scribe, this Old Testament scholar, when he sees this and when he hears Jesus' words, he rightfully then noticed this as he's asking which commandment, expecting one of the 613. Jesus answers what he does. The scribe says, yeah, Jesus, you're right, because what I know from, from knowing my Old Testament is that there's something underneath foundational to the sacrifices, and if that's not right, the sacrifices, uh, the, 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 the everything we do is meaningless and pointless. The key that we see is that God is not desiring mere conformity. The 613 laws and regulations won't save, and they won't justify. In fact, years ago when we were in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, what we learned was that man is justified apart from the works of the law. That the Bible, the Bible constantly tells us it's our relationship, it's our love relationship with God, which is true worship and inspires true obedience. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those two things are always hand in hand. And, and the problem is not that the law is flawed or that the law is not good. The problem here is that the law is looked at through the wrong, wrong motive. So the story's not over. The story's not over. So Jesus, the scribe, says, hey, Jesus, good job. And Jesus has a parting word for this scribe. I get on the right page. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? I think there's a temptation to wrongly assume, uh, I'm going to use our modern language, but I think there's a temptation to wrongly assume Hey, this guy's almost saved. And what we know from reading the New Testament is there's no such thing as almost saved. Right? The Bible says we're dead and then we're brought to life. There's not an intermediate stage. And so uh, one of the things I was thinking about is my um, mother grew up in a Christian home. Uh, grew up going to church every time the door was open. She would say was forced uh, to start singing when she was a little kid in church and loved it. Um, but what she found out um, as she was a pastor's wife, after she had led many people to the Lord later in her life, and a whole other issue, a whole other story, but she found out she wasn't a believer. Uh, during a revival, she realized that she was just as lost, as she would put it, as the member of the motorcycle gang who came in in the middle of the same revival. And boom! from one minute had no thoughts about God to love for God. So there's, and we see this in the Bible, there is no almost saved. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Why in the world would Jesus say this? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, do you remember the, it's okay because you're going to say no, I don't, Lewis. Um, but the Christmas message that I preached several weeks ago about the kingdom of God and Jesus 
ushering in the kingdom of God. Well, in Mark, we have this language as well. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, we have John the Baptist. And he says about Jesus, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. What I think is going on here is that as Jesus looks at this scribe and says the kingdom's you're not far from the kingdom, what he's telling him is, is, I'm right here. I'm right here. Because what we know by Jesus' words is that Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Jesus also tells us, and it's in the book of John, if you love the Father, you would love who? Jesus. So I think Jesus, as He's looking at this scribe, and He tells him rightly, you've got it, you understand what I'm saying, but what I want you to know is, you're not far from the kingdom. It's right here. So, one of the things that we see in this greatest commandment that in order to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we've got to love Jesus. And that's the gospel message, right? The gospel message that Jesus, that we're dead in our sins, we're separated from God, but Jesus came, bore our sin, bore our guilt, bore our shame, And if we trust Him, if we confess that He is Lord, then God is faithful to save us and we're reunited with the Father. So for us, Jesus is everything. But it doesn't stop there. It's not that this love for God with all our heart, mind, and soul is entrance into the kingdom. In many ways, I think it is being a Christian means loving Jesus. That's the simplest way that I can tell somebody and can discern if if someone's a Christian is, do you love Jesus? And Jesus said radical things about this, right? About you love, you don't love me more than father, brother, mother. So being a Christian, becoming a Christian is about loving Jesus. But I also think our sanctification, our uh, growing in our spiritual life, Our limping along to heaven is all about this same thing. Loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the New Testament is filled with this language about knowing Jesus, about union with Jesus, about communing with Jesus. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that our relationship with God is what fuels our obedience. So what I want to pray for us in this new year is that you would love Jesus more. Now let me say this. Will you do that perfectly this side of heaven? No. So what I don't want you to do is leave here beating yourself up because you're like me, and as you evaluate your life and evaluate this past year that you've seen that you haven't loved Jesus 
um, like you should. Well, join the club. Do you know what we call someone who has loved Jesus like they should this year? A liar. Okay? What I'm wanting to do this morning is to fan the flames, to fan the flames in your heart. And if you are one of His, it shouldn't be hard to fan those flames because you should desire this, that relationship. And so you may leave here, you may leave here and say, you know what, I'm going to be committed to Bible reading, but I want you to be committed to Bible reading for the right reason. Not mere some intellectual pursuit, but I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones looks at the Christian life and how, looks, how he looks at passages like this, looks at the Bible and says, yes, I see that, that we're to love Jesus with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And he boils it down to three categories and gives us an order in which they should be done. And what he says is, is that we can't tr- make sense, common sense, you can't truly love Jesus if you don't know who he is. And so there has to be intellectual input. Right? Makes sense. You've got to read His Word and find out who He is, who this God is, so that there are into, there's intellectual input. Like that passage in Isaiah about God, if you, you never knew that about God, about how big He was, when you read the Bible, it informs our intellect of how big God is. And now, then what happens in us is that if we're truly pursuing this out of a desire to know Him, then what happens is that that should create emotions. And what I'm not saying is that we all emote the same way. It's, it's, it's funny having kids. All of my kids emote differently. Christmas is funny in my house. Just because one kid can open up something and just be overjoyed and there's not a whole lot of reaction and another one is screaming, jumping up and down. We all emote different ways, and that is okay. But what I'm asking you to examine is, is something going on? Is your soul stirred? Because the intellect should stir the soul, which should lead us into desiring, willing, wanting more, and wanting to be obedient to this God out of His love for us and our love for Him. And that's the right order and the right way to go about this. So I pray that you're resolved this year to read more so that your goal is falling more in love. And I pray that your desire this year is to pray more so that you can commune. Think about that. That God we read about in Isaiah 40. That you, because of Jesus, can commune with this God. It's mind-boggling. Now, I want to end with one thing. And what I want to say is that there are many obstacles and reasons why people get out of shape and have a hard time doing some of this. And so you could do conferences on um, this. Everything from um, knowing how to read the Bible, uh, you know, to... uh, some emotional, um, psychological hang-ups. Um, and, and one of them that's popular, and so I want to encourage us in a way, uh, when I say popular, prevalent is what I should say, is that um, one of the obstacles that many of us have is that we are set up in such a way that when we hear 
father language in the Bible that sometimes that raises negative emotions in some of us. I had a wonderful father, but in some of us that raises negative emotions. And so what I want to encourage you all is notice in the passage in Deuteronomy, and if you were at family camp, that was the passage we used to justify that is the father's role in the home to disciple his children. Notice that in that passage in Deuteronomy, it says, teach your children. Now, uh, our small group met, we, we were dedicated to meet this summer, and we met once. And that one time we met, we listened to, uh, uh, we were listening to the series by uh, Dr. Tripp, oh, I forget, Grace Base, I don't know what it was, something like that. But in the first lesson, it, it hadn't shaken me, uh, he, he's talking about raising our children and discipling our children. And uh, so I was, gonna, I was thinking he was going to talk about, you know, here, you, you know here's how you create uh, PowerPoints and slides so that they get all this knowledge. And one of the things he talked about in there that just pierced me to the core of who I was was, how often do you talk about uh, your relationship with the Lord and the wonder and the greatness of God that you're experiencing to your children? <laughs> and it took me back to something Tony Souter shared maybe four years ago at our men's retreat where he encouraged us men that we are to see, savor, and share. We're to see God, whether in his word or in other people or things. We're to savor that, and then we are to share it. And so it just hit me that as if you're here and that you're a father, one of the ways you can help your children become better worshipers and that you can help them along in their journey and their path of loving the Lord, their God, Father, heart, mind, soul, strength, mind, is that you do this with them. And I'll tell you how simple it is and imperfect it is. Um, We are in our home uh, right now reading as a family a psalm every day. And so we meet sometimes for five, sometimes ten, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen, uh, minutes, and we we talk about the passage. And one of the things, and this is good, uh, that, you know, when we're reading a passage, we ask the question, what does this say about God? Because that's the main point, right? In the story of David and Goliath, David or Goliath weren't the main point. It was God was the main point. What are we learning about God in this scripture? And so one of the things when we do that, one of the questions that we try to ask, I try to ask every day and failed last night, I'm realizing at this moment, is mom and dad, this characteristic, this quality of God that you see here in this text, What is a time in your life where you saw this? That begins to awaken something in our kids. You see that? It begins to awaken that this relationship with God is real and that we can love Him and see Him and adore Him. Now, like I said, we're out of time. We're scratching the surface. um, And if this has been like a fire hose, it's Gary's fault. Um, But in this new year, In this new year, I pray, I pray for us, and let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for each one of us that, God, this year will be marked by us falling more in love with you. God, I pray that you would help us to know and to discern how to love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. That we would have an undivided allegiance to you. God, I pray that you would do this in me. God, don't let my heart grow cold. Don't let my heart be like some of the churches in the book of Revelation 
who go away from their first love. But God, keep me close to you. Keep us close to you. God, this is only possible through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.